The scripture for this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. Uh, these past four weeks, we have as a community uh, been looking at what it looks like to grow in our marriages, in our relationships. And we did this coupled with a marriage seminar on Wednesday nights. And uh, in the sermon series, we've looked at a few different things. We've looked at uh, the mystery of marriage. Uh, we've looked at the obstacles to a healthy marriage, namely shame. And last week, we began to look at what it looks like to move towards one another in marriage in healthy conflict. This morning, uh, we're going to look at something that may be one of the most underrated and forgotten aspects of a healthy relationship. And, and I say relationship because uh, this has been a, a marriage series, but I, I think the principles of what we're going to look at today, and though I am going to talk about marriage, uh, it actually applies to almost any relationship that we're in. So uh, it applies to how we interact with our children. It applies to how we interact with our friends. It applies to how we interact with our parents. Uh, this idea of learning to or relearning to play together is something that we all who are in relationship with one another, in community with one another and with others, uh, really, really need to remember what it looks like and what it means and how it functions in our lives. So if you're single, uh, if you are not married, if you're younger, if you're newly married, uh, I I pray that you stick with us because I believe this is going to speak to all of us this morning. Um, every time I come home, <clears throat> uh, two things I know are going to happen. One, the dog is going to freak out. Um, and one thing that's nice about the dog freaking out is that my daughter knows that I'm home, or vice versa. Uh, she knows that Andrea's home if I'm already home. And every time that I come home, I open the door, and my two-and-a-half-year-old Lila is right there with this big grin on her face. And she just looks up at me, and she smiles, and then she bolts like just gone, takes off, runs around the couch, takes off, runs into the guest room and slams the door shut behind her. Like so she's going to break that door at some point. It's incredible how strong she is for a two and a half year old. I told y'all like about this time a year ago when she was a year and a half that some of the most lucky uh, afternoons of my day are when uh, Lila's on the porch and she comes running down the porch and jumps into my arms. Uh, Those days are gone. Um, But here's what's funny, is I was thinking about this week, I think the fact that Lila looks at me and runs away into the guest room, rather than running and jumping into my arms, I actually think that means that our relationship is closer now than it was a year ago. Here's why. Lila wants me to bypass the dog, bypass the wife, walk around the couch, open the door, walk into the bedroom, and say, I wonder where Lila is. And then I have to say, is she outside? No, she's not. Is she under the bed? No, she's not. And I have to wait until she pulls up 
the skirt over the table and says, there she is. And I have to say, there she is. And then we fall onto the bed and we wrestle and we giggle for 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, you know. Her first instinct with me when I come home is she wants to play. She wants to play. And uh, I think that this is so important. And it's almost so obvious that it shouldn't be stating, but stated, but playing together and being playful is the fundamental and foundational way that children learn, right? It's how they learn boundaries. It's how they learn uh, how to share. It's how they learn how to engage. But I think, especially with their parents, more than anything, playing is how they learn to grow in intimacy. That ritual that uh, Lila and I have every day is not a mindless or pointless activity. It's actually me conveying to Lila something really important, that she matters to me that I see her, that she's important, that I want to be in relationship with her, that I want to engage with her, that I, that I would not uh, leave her under that table when the door shut. She knows that. And this means something for us too. God created us to be playful and to play and to have leisure time. And it's not because this is an escape or pointless, but rather because that is what cultivates intimacy in our relationships. And we do know this best as children without all the inhibitions of the world, of culture, all the experiences of sin and loss and the busyness of the world. We know as children that playing with our parents and our friends creates, sustains, and cultivates intimacy. And this is true of your relationships as well. Think of your friendships whether deep or shallow, old or new, how did you become friends? It was most likely a common interest, a hobby, a circumstance that you guys shared together. That friendship and bond was most likely cultivated or, or at least grown uh, in the times that you mutually did something that you enjoyed together. Think about your past dating relationships. How did you grow close to your former significant others? You went on dates. You explored common interests and hobbies and you did them together. Or early in your marriages, what did it look like? You played together. You explored the world together as a newlywed, as this new creation, this new oneness together. Being playful or enjoying experiences together is what creates intimacy. Uh, so so what, is, what, what is play? Well, Dr. Steve Call, he wrote a book. We're going to use a couple of his quotes today. It's called Reconnect. Um, at the end of this marriage series that we are, that'd be a great book for you guys to read together as couples. But he describes play this way. It says, play is any activity or experience that brings us pleasure and enjoyment. And it looks different for each couple. Some of us might refer to play as fun. Others might think of it as a leisure. Either way, playing with our spouse forges a bond. Playing with our friends forges a bond. Playing with our children forges a bond. Play says this, fundamentally, the same thing that I say to Lila in those moments. It says, I am with you, you are with me, and nothing else matters in this moment. Because when we play, we're the most ourselves. We let our guard down, our hair down. And it lets others see us in a, a raw state. And in that, they understand us better. 
But we lose sight of this, or, or if you're um, like me, uh, uh, you don't necessarily lose sight of it, but you lose the ability for it. From the pressure of family life to chasing kids around to work to busyness, anxiety and depression to the brokenness of this world, we lose the desire and time to create space for this. Some of you, uh, your desire to play was stunted since you were a kid. Your parents didn't have time to play with you, and the message you received was that it wasn't necessary or important. Some of you are too busy and struggle to make time for play and leisure time with your spouse and others because of work or mother or fatherhood or whatever. Some of your stage of life is so hectic and difficult with kids and babies that it doesn't even seem like an option. Some of you are in marriages with such deep disconnect over so many years and decades that that desire to connect and play was lost long ago. But here's what I think is true. If we reject this playfulness in our relationships, the connecting and engaging with one another in this way, we are rejecting God's gift to us and how we were created. How he created us to actually get to know one another and how to grow in intimacy with one another. And what this passage in Ecclesiastes reminds us is that we were created to play so that intimacy could be cultivated. It reminds us that a desire to play is it's not something trite or a waste of time or, or something to be ignored or the lowest on the list that we have in our minds. No, it's an avenue through which intimacy is found, created, and even rediscovered in our friendships, and in our marriages. And what I love about Ecclesiastes, uh, this is a book about a writer who's almost in existential crisis. Feels like life uh, is vain, it's meaningless, and yet repeatedly, in the book, he comes back to this idea of joy. This idea that we can, in some way, find pleasure and joy in life. But what he does, it's, it's so cool throughout the whole book, uh, he always originates this experience of joy in God at the center. So why do we enjoy eating and drinking and working according to him? Well, in chapter 2, he says that all these activities come to us from the hand of God himself. In chapter 3, he said these activities of play and enjoyment are God's gift to man. In chapter 5, he says that God occupies our hearts, and the way he occupies it is with joy and pleasure. And then in our passage today, he says that God has given us food and drink, and work as something that we actually can take joy and pleasure in, and that he foreordained and created us to be that way. God our Father is at the center of our desire to play and be playful because he created us in that way. And we're going to see that this idea this morning calls us to three things. So first, uh, we must create, be intentional about creating rituals of play to cultivate this intimacy with one another. Second, we must continue to play despite conflict to cultivate intimacy. And finally, we must construct understanding through play to cultivate intimacy. So create rituals, continue to play despite conflict, and construct understanding. So first, create rituals of play. Verse 7 says this, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. The word go here uh, is an action word. It's uh, stronger than that even. It's a command. The the author is telling us that there's a command to go eat and drink with joy and a merry heart. 
This is less about uh, what you eat or drink or how much you eat or drink with a merry heart, but rather the joyfulness in doing it is the command. This is instructive because it's telling us that we must be intentional in how we do these things and how we create the rituals to partake in them. And then he goes on to say that God has already approved what you do. Now, in some way, this could be construed, uh, and it has been, that we can do whatever we want. We can drink as much as we want. We can eat as much as we want. Um, It's been taken out of context for a long time to excuse drunkenness, gluttony, and hedonism. But that's not what the author is getting at here at all. The, The NSRV translates this verse a little more literally like this. He says, God has long ago approved what you do. This translation gives a little more nuance because it's not saying that God foreordains or approved everything that we do now, especially not the sin that we commit, but rather long ago at the creation of all things, this is what he approved of us to do and to be. It was to take joy in every aspect of our life. So this is why he goes on to say, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments were the dress-up clothes of the ancient Near East. Conquering generals and kings wore white when they rode into a city uh, that they had conquered. The formal toga used in traditional settings in that society were white. Uh, Even the resurrected Christ, when he revealed himself again to his followers, were white. And the oil on their head would be um, an anointing oil. An oil of preparation for something important that you were about to do. And um, it smelled good, right? The author of Ecclesiastes is saying this enjoyment thing is important. This eating and drinking and taking joy, this pleasures of life is something worth doing and doing well and intentionally. It's serious. Take, put, put on your dress clothes. Wear your tux. Go out. Put your smell good on. We are meant in this despondent, broken, and tough thing that we do life Uh, do called life to take joy and find pleasure in it. We were created that way. This creating of rituals is so important for us. Um, But it really is an intentional thing. I think one of the um, greatest gifts that someone gave us, uh, it might have even been the, the, the guy who married us, Andre and I, when we got married, was to go on a weekly date night. So the first five years of marriage, we really stuck to that. And every Tuesday night, we went out on a date night. And I'll never forget one of the times in St. Louis when we were living out there, it was my turn to plan date night. And so I um, looked up this really cool brewery that we were going to go to before we went to a movie. And they had games and these little nooks and cubbies. And uh, you could kind of take a game in and play. And so I got the least threatening game I thought possible, checkers. And we go into our little cubby and we're playing checkers, right? One thing leads to another. I'm playing very well. (laughs) I've got four or five kings. Andrea's running out of uh, pieces. And so she says, logically, I'm done. I wave the white flag. You win. And I said, no, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) You're going to finish this game. And she was like, I'm not finishing this game. You won. I was like, no, I haven't won yet. We're finishing this thing out. And I made us finish it out. She still hasn't forgiven me to this day for that night. And we go to a movie after, uh, and honestly, she almost made me drive her home. And uh, we go see this movie, and it was called About Time. And if you haven't seen it, it's beautiful and wonderful. And 
we both leave the theater, this wonderful romance uh, within time travel. It's really cool. And we're leaving, and we're both crying, and we look at each other, and we're like, I love you so much. Like, I'm sorry I was such a jerk. And we just had this beautiful connection um, because of that. I was hurtful towards Andrea during that time of play, but I learned something about her, and she learned something about me. I learned about her competitive spirit, not someone to mess with. I learned that I had a tendency to be overcompetitive, and together we learned that a shared experience, even simply like a movie that we both love, could be a point of connection that we never would have had otherwise. But it was because of that ritual of play that we had created in our marriage that we not only learned things about one another, but that we grew in intimacy because of it. If you think about it, our cultural context is doing everything it can to keep us from making time to do this with one another, though. One of the biggest difficulties today in making space to play is that um, our culture, technology, and our context today has set everything up to numb us. Think about this. We have so much at our fingertips to keep us occupied and disconnected from one another. We can scroll through our phones constantly. We can browse Netflix for hours. Porn, social media, TV, movies have never been more accessible. And there's a sense in our culture that the more busy you are even, the holier you are. This is also an attempt to numb us and keep us disconnected. And this cycle of numbness is something we have to break out of. Because that takes place in our relationships, right? It doesn't, it's not an isolated thing that we do. We too allow that to seep into our friendships, in our marriages. We get bored with one another. We forget why we were friends in the first place or why we fell in love with a person in the first place or why we even got together. We, we try in our own ways to break this numbness, right? We order things on Amazon we don't need just for the little dopamine rush when it shows up at our door a day or two later. We try out a new show or start a movie hoping it will give us something. We overindulge in food, alcohol, drugs to make us feel something. And in all of it, we are looking for intimacy and we're getting numbed in the process. But here's what creating rituals of play does. It breaks that barrier of numbness. Plato once said that you can discover more about a person in one hour of play than in a year of conversation. I love that because that means that this is an ancient understanding. Rituals of play break through the numbing tendency that we are conditioned in right now. Because it says, I see you. You're important to me. I'm with you in this moment. And there's nothing that we indulge in that will do that for us. So what are these rituals? Well, it's different for everyone. Again, it's not what you eat or drink, right? Or how you play, but rather that you are intentionally creating rituals to do it. And Dre and I, in the stage of life that we are in, can no longer have a date night every week. We have a two and a half year old, and uh, in three weeks we'll have a newborn. It, it's, just, it's literally impossible for us to go out every single week. Our time of play now looks like going on a walk together, sometimes multiple times a week, with the whole family. Sometimes it's eating at the table intentionally and not on the couch. It's watching a show we both love or an old movie neither of us have ever seen before and then connecting over it. It's doing a project around the house when the kids are asleep. 
I know a couple in our congregation who most Tuesday mornings get a weekly breakfast at Okra's Family Restaurant. I know some of you that go get takeout once a week as your ritual of play. Some of you go on walks. Uh, one of my favorite new rituals of play that, that Andrea and some of her friends do is they have a monthly movie club together. That is a point of connection for them that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Rituals are so important because they're ongoing, consistent, shared experiences that set the stage for connection. Again, Steve Call puts it this way, being intentional about playing together in simple, consistent ways ensures that we can count on having quality time together, which creates the potential for deeper intimacy and connection. So those of you that have lost or don't have consistent rituals of play and connection, what are ways you can begin to create them? If it's with your spouse, what, what did y'all do when you first got married? What do those early date nights look like? How can you incorporate them into your new stage of life and your different stage of life? Where do your shared interests overlap? It might even be helpful for you to make a list of all the things each of you would do on a day that you had free, an afternoon that you had off, and then see where your lists overlap or where something on each other's list, even if they don't overlap, sounds like fun that you can connect in. Perhaps the holiest thing you can do this morning as a couple is to sit down and begin to pray and think through what rituals of play you can create or rediscover in your marriage. But what we know is that it's not that simple, right? There is, it's more complicated than just that. And this brings us to our second point. God created us to play so that we could cultivate intimacy, right? And we saw that we must create rituals of play to do that. Second, we're going to see that we must continue to play despite conflict. Verse 9 says this, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. The author of Ecclesiastes uh, is doing something very, very interesting here. He talks about enjoying life, being intentional about creating time to enjoy it, commanding us. And then he moves on to joy within the marriage relationship. He says, enjoy life with the wife you love. Now, he was probably speaking to an all-male audience, but the principle and intent behind what he was saying was not directed at men only. This is an encouragement to those married to one another. He's saying, enjoy the life with the wife whom you love, husbands. And also, wives, enjoy the life with the husband you love. This is a scriptural command to us as God's people to enjoy life with our spouses. But then he kind of balances that or, or uh, puts in opposition to that something else. He brings in one of the key and perhaps most important concepts in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. The idea that all of our lives are vain. This idea of vanity um, is central to this book. And obviously, we're not going to go through the whole book, but the word um, vanity is Hebel in the Hebrew, which, interesting enough, is the, the same word for the brother of Cain, who died at the hands of Cain in his jealousy. And many commentators try and decide what the exact definition of this word is. And the literal root of the word comes down to uh, vapor or breath. This would connote the idea that the vanity of life is that our, our life has no weight or no substance or purpose, that it's meaningless. But some scholars, and where I think I line up, is that the translation is not 
meaningless, but rather the nuance of the word is actually absurdity. And this idea, the vanity of life, would simply mean that often life just doesn't make sense, that it's absurd. And uh, I love this definition for vanity because this is the way that we should view sin. And we know that sin, the brokenness, the fallenness of the world does touch all of our life. Sin is absurd. It's not the way it was ever meant to be here. It's an alien invader into what was to be good and perfect. It's a parasite on God's good creation. It was never supposed to be here or in us. It's the breaking of what was never supposed to be broken. That includes us in our relationships. But why I love this idea in this context is because the author of Ecclesiastes is pairing it with marriage, with relationships. He says, husbands and wives, enjoy your spouse who you love and do it in all the days of the absurdity of life. He's saying your life together is not going to make sense. Often. How could it? You're two sinful and broken people that have been brought together to be one sinful and broken unit. If sin is absurdity, then often your life is not going to make sense together. You're going to look at across the dinner table one night and think, who is this person that I married? How could this person have done this to me? How do we end up here? You see, it's this sin, this absurdity in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships that leads us to conflict and sometimes deep conflict. And it seems uh, that our author here is not very helpful because he says it is going to be absurd. It's also going to be uh, your portion in toil for the rest of your life. He literally ends the verse saying, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And some of you have been toiling in the absurdity of your marriage for a long time. Some of you have had such deep layers and years of hurt build up that your toil under the sun, the absurdity of your marriage has become conflict-based and oriented. The only way you know how to move towards one another is in conflict. And it's this hurt between us that causes and perpetuates disconnection. We have these deeply embedded patterns in us that we either grew up with or taught or learned over the course of our relationships of how to respond when someone else hurts us. And if these things are so deeply embedded in us, how could we possibly break them? And I truly believe that learning or relearning to play together could be one of the ways that that pattern of disconnection and hurt can be broken up. If we are in conflict with one another, one of the worst things we can do is stop making time to play together. And here's why. Conflict, especially good and healthy conflict, is an avenue through which intimacy can grow. If we don't know conflict, actually, we don't know intimacy. Because it's also in conflict that we understand one another. So playing together, despite our hurt, can actually be an avenue through which intimacy can grow, even in the midst of conflict. Earlier we said that play and making leisure time was important because it gave us a central message, right? It says that I see you. You're important to me. I want to be around you. 
So that means the opposite's also true, right? When we refuse to engage with one another in that way. When we dismiss that desire, we are telling each other, I don't want to be with you. I don't see you. You're not important to me. And that brings, and we internalize it, shame. But what, Todd stopped by my office this week and he told me, he said, playing together breaks up shame. I love that idea. Playing together breaks up shame. It's like this barrier of shame that has grown between us because we have rejected one another for so long. Playing together breaks that up. And in that broken place is where the Holy Spirit can and will work for healing, for restoration. So let me ask you, those of you in conflict with your spouse or even your friends or siblings or children, when was the last time you moved toward them, not in conflict, but to engage them in play or leisure time? To do something you both enjoy doing? Where have you rejected your spouse's desire to spend time with you because you were too busy or too stressed or too hurt? And where can you begin to invite that playfulness back into your life? What would it look like for you to rediscover that avenue of intimacy? So we have seen that we are created for play so that intimacy can be cultivated between us. So we must create rituals. We must continue to play despite conflict. And now we're going to see that we must construct understanding through play. Uh, Many of you are here, and um, these patterns of behavior that we talked about have lasted for decades. And so much so that even the idea of enjoying one another is not possible. But I, I think this is why our last point is so important Um, to this point. There's kind of a bridge between the conflict and the understanding. It's because of this. The goal of conflict in our marriages and in our relationships, the goal of conflict is not compromise. It's understanding. The goal of conflict is not compromise. It's understanding. And that takes a lot of work. It takes work to be understood and to seek understanding of those that we are in relationship with. And the author of Ecclesiastes knows this. He says, uh, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. He encourages us that in whatever endeavor we do, whatever the work we do, we must do it with all of our might, yes. But then he names Sheol, referencing uh, neither heaven nor hell here, but the Jewish understanding of the place of the dead. More or less, he's referring to nothingness here. And by ending the passage here, he's linking the idea of joy of the work that we do here on earth, the work that often feels absurd and meaningless. He's reminding us that in that work, we actually can find joy. So how do we, in relationship with one another, how do we construct understanding with one another? I think... The first way is we must die to ourselves. To actually, actively seek to reestablish patterns of play, connection, and intimacy. It's going to call you to die to yourself. That's the work of marriage and relationships. That's the toil of marriage. 
that we covenanted with one another despite loss of intimacy, connection, and brokenness to continue to fight with one another. And yes, to continue to fight, to play with one another, even if it calls us to die to ourselves. But we're not alone in that work. Because before we covenanted with one another, God covenanted himself with us. God is at work in us before we are ever at work for one another. We die to ourselves for the sake of one another because Jesus died for us, for our sake. When we broke our God-given intimacy that was our right as his creation and his image bearers, when we lost our direct connection to him because of our sin, he sent his son to die for us. The work of the cross was Jesus dying so that we could find life in him. In the same way, we are called to die to one another so that our intimacy can be restored with one another, so that our relationships can be restored, so that the joy of our marriages can be rediscovered. Jesus died so that we could construct a new understanding of him of Him, in ourselves in relationship to him. In the same way, we must die to one another. It's there that we find understanding. It's there that the construction of a new understanding of who we are in relationship with happens. Steve Call again says this, playing together cultivates understanding, safety, and trust. When we play, we are more ourselves. We let our guard down, which helps our spouse know and understand us better. Rediscovering play in your marriage and in your relationships will help you to begin to understand those you're in a relationship with better. And you may begin to understand yourself better too. Dying to self leads to self-discovery. But it also leads to others' discovery too. But here's what I hope more than anything. My hope is that in rediscovering that playfulness in yourself, you begin to construct not just a new understanding of yourself or the person in your relationship with, but also God himself too. We have a God who is playful. The act of creation itself could be seen as one big act of God being playful, throwing colors here and there, experimenting with different aspects of terrain and flora and fauna, animals and the skyline. If you haven't been to the Science Center and seen the peacock, it's insane. I mean, the colors on that thing are so beautiful and whimsical. Lila's obsessed with that thing. Because she gets it. She understands on some level, wow, God was being playful when he created this peacock. And if we miss this fundamental aspect of who God is, we miss a fundamental aspect of who we are in relationship to him. And thus with one another as well. Um, there's a poem uh, called As the Kingfisher Catches Fire. And it speaks to this playfulness of God. And I'm going to read it over to you guys as we finish up here. It says this. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bells. Bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. Selves go itself. 
Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices. Keep grace that keeps all his goings grace. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father, through the feature of men's faces. Christ plays in 10,000 places. I think of Jesus' interaction with the children where he gathers them into his arms and he says that theirs and those that have faith in hearts like children are heirs to the kingdom of God. A childlike, playful faith that we are called to that's where intimacy is found, both with him and with one another. So where do you need to move towards your partner in this way? Where do you need to create ritual plays, uh, a play in your life together? Where do you, even in conflict, need to push through and continue to play and not let sin and our cultural context prohibit you from doing it? And where do you need to find a better understanding of yourself, of one another, and of the Lord? Because he is moving towards you. And it's his movement towards you first that enables you to move towards one another. Remember, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Will you do the same? Amen.